Hello friends, welcome to Wednesday Wake Up, a podcast hosted by Gregory Maloof, Buddhist Dharma teacher in the lineage of Ruth Dennison, mental health therapist, and mindfulness coach. Wednesday Wake Up explores the ancient teachings of Buddhism through the lens of Western psychology, neuroscience, and the modern human potential movement. Our commitment is for these teachings to educate, challenge, and inspire you to awaken to your deepest potential to live a truly fulfilling life of wisdom, joy, and compassion. Thank you for joining us. May these teachings serve you well. Last week, we started a conversation um, about the challenges of the Dharma. And what I had said last week is I want to spend the next few weeks elucidating different aspects of the Dharma that in the past I had never really considered talking about as challenges. Really looking at parts of the Dharma that students struggle with, that I've struggled with, and really being honest and open about the theory or the practice that either challenges us or rubs us the wrong way. It's it's something we just don't talk about that much. I mean, we talk about the wandering mind and we talk about the hindrances, but you know, we don't actually often talk about the path itself. We don't often talk about how challenging spiritual practice is and how confronting the Dharma can be to the way we live, the way we think, the way we feel. If you have not had a chance to listen to last week's podcast, I highly recommend it. I think it's a very important Dharma talk because what I what I talk about in that in last week's meeting was essentially why it is that the Dharma is considered to be going against the stream, why it is that the Buddha acknowledged that in order to really practice the Dharma, the Dharma will eventually challenge our values it will challenge what we think happiness is it will challenge the image that we have of what we want to be in the world and how we can become that very thing it overturns our value system in a very big way and the buddha often said that if it's the true dharma then it's going to be overturning our values meaning it's going to redefine what happiness is it's going to redefine what suffering is and that's that's not an e- that's a tall order as we all know right that's a tall order to actively and intentionally engage in that reconciliation that we have with our ideas about happiness and suffering and how to live and what it is to live a noble and compassionate and wise life so we started that dialogue last week so if you hadn't had a chance to listen to that please do when you get a chance i think it's really important And last week at the end of the session, I had invited everyone to just be thinking over the next few weeks, jot down in your journal if you have one or if you're just doing reflections, to really begin to think about what it is about the Dharma that you find most challenging. What do you find to be the most difficult? Where do you get hung up? Where do you get frustrated? And one of the things I mentioned last week is that we don't often create a space for us to talk about those things. And it's just the natural way of the human heart and the human mind that we get tripped up on this stuff. And we might go weeks or months or even years in practice without really knowing that we're struggling or knowing that we're struggling and don't really know how to reconcile it or who to talk to or how to voice our concerns. 
And so this is just a hugely important dialogue as far as I'm concerned. And I learned a lot just the last couple of weeks in thinking about what we had talked about. And I'm just going to continue that journey tonight. I I have this idea. I'll probably get some feedback from you at some, at some point soon, either tonight or, or next week as we move through the next several weeks of talking about this. I would like to have some discussion where people can really talk about what like they could basically we could go around and list off our, our challenges. But what I want to do before then is I have a couple things I think are really important to talk about tonight to give us some context for that conversation. And the two things I wanted to talk about tonight are dukkha, suffering, and why that concept is so important in the Dharma and why it can be very challenging for us. And well, let's start there and see where we get that. That's the main thing. I really want to talk about dukkha tonight, and I want to talk about it in a particular way that I don't normally don't normally speak. So let's go there and let's see what happens. So this is what I've been thinking about since last week's dialogue. When you look at the Eightfold Path, when you look at the Dharma, at least traditional Buddhist teachings, the major concept that we're working with is suffering, dukkha, right? Stress, discontent, dis-ease, dissatisfaction. But I think it's really easy to either misunderstand or forget what the Buddha actually meant by it. And if we don't understand what the Buddha meant by it, it really can derail our practice. It really can cause a lot of challenges for how we practice and how we feel successful in our meditation. And the other thing to take note is it's easy to forget what the relationship is between dukkha and the rest of the path. Why is this where the Buddha starts and finishes his teachings? Why suffering? Why is suffering the doorway? And the more we can understand why that is so and what the Buddha actually meant by it, the easier our practice is going to be and the less stumbling blocks we'll have over the course of our journey. So I want to clarify real quickly what the Buddha meant by dukkha, highlighting parts that I've felt confused about in my journey, hoping that this is going to be something as well that you may have thought about, or maybe it's brand new, which is fine as well. The term dukkha doesn't really have a literal translation to English. So there's a lot of different words that we use for it. Dukkha can mean pain, it can mean suffering, it can mean stress. Dukkha can mean discontent, it can mean aversion. Essentially, it can mean dissatisfaction of any kind. It's a whole gradation and spectrum of dissatisfaction. And what's interesting about the term is that in the old teachings, in the Pali Suttas, the Buddha never actually writes out, a, well, writes out, the Buddha never wrote anything, so to speak, but uh, the teachings never write out any clear denotative definition of dukkha. There isn't a part that just says suffering is dot, dot, dot. We don't have that. And it's important to reflect on why that is. When the Buddha talks about suffering, he only gives broad examples of dukkha. He never gives hyper-specific types of suffering. And I wanted to read for you a little quote. It's a pretty famous quote, and I'm sure most of you have heard this before. Actually, now that I'm looking at it, most of you have heard this before. But this is just one of the major passages where the Buddha talks about dukkha. And it's the closest we get to what you might call a definition. And this is one of the ways that he describes it. Birth is stressful. Aging is stressful. 
Death is stressful. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair are stressful. Association with people we do not like is stressful. Separation from people we do like is stressful. Not getting what we want is stressful. So you have this really broad, I mean, if you go from not getting what you want to death, there's a broad range of discontent there, right? Or stress, um, despair, lamentation. You know, we all as human beings know the experience of not getting what we want. Not a pleasant experience. Now, depending on who we are and what the circumstance, we might respond differently to not getting what we want. But the fact is, the Buddha actually uses these broad categories. He, he uses this broad sense of discontent for several reasons. And I think knowing these reasons can be helpful for understanding what he's really getting at. The first thing to note is that he's using broad categories because he wants to point out the universality of the experience of suffering. What the Buddha is saying is that all of us as human beings know what it's like to not get what we want. We know what it's like to be in pain and want out of pain. We, want, we know what it's like to be around people that we don't want to be around. What he's trying to do here is to make a universal declaration that all of us have a shared experience that we call dukkha. And for each one of us, it might be different because we each have different life experiences. But generally speaking, we can all nod our heads and say, yes, I've experienced as a human being not getting what I want, a relationship that's not working. I've experienced illness and suffering and sickness in some way or another. All of us have had the experience of being dissatisfied with life in some way, shape or form. So this is intentional on the Buddhist part. He's trying to remind us of this universal idea of dukkha. He doesn't want to get too hyper-specific. He wants to use broad categories so that everybody in a room like this, so to speak, can nod their heads and say, okay, gotcha, dukkha, yeah, this sense of suffering, this sense of discontent. Another reason that the Buddha lays it out this way is that human beings experience discontent differently. So even though several of us may have had a significant event in our lives that we did not like or things did not go our way, right, in a particular circumstance, each one of us is going to have a personalized version of that dukkha. So even though the categories of dukkha are universal to the human experience, the important thing to know about dukkha is that it's personal. We feel dukkha inside. Suffering and stress is an internal, personal, subjective experience. This is part of the reason why the Buddha gives you broad and general categories, because he knows and understands that even though we've all had similar experiences, we have personalities and ways of being, and we experience those tragedies and those discontents in our own private way. And we all have different ways of reacting to things. One way of looking at this as a therapist, I've done a lot of family work. I'm a family systems trained therapist, so I've done a lot of family work. And one of the most amazing things when working with, in my experience in working with families, is why I've done a lot of kid work, kid, kid working with kids too. So I've, I've worked with sibling pairs, and I've noticed that 
it just kind of blows my mind that you've got siblings who are all in a household that's having a particular trial or tribulation, and all three of the siblings are managing it completely differently. One person is not even paying attention to what's going on, or at least appears not to be caring. One person is very traumatized by the experience, and another person is somewhere in between. The circumstance is the same, but you've got three people responding in different ways. So their dukkha is very personal, right? Their dukkha is very personal. It's the same with, like, say, adults. Like, if you have two adults, let's say two adults are in a car accident, right? Two adults are in a car accident. They both survive. It's it's no death or anything like that. But you get in a car accident, and one of the people in the car accident may have found that car accident life-transforming. Maybe it was a near-death experience, and the experience rocks their world, and it takes their life in a completely different direction. The other person in the car accident ends up with PTSD, trauma, can't sleep, relives the experience. So when we talk about dukkha, we're talking about two things. We're talking about outside circumstances which tend to trigger discontent, and we're talking about the inner experience, the personal experience of suffering, which is caused by our reaction to the outside event. I was in a car accident when I was in my early 20s, and it was a very bad car. I nearly died. I was in a very bad car accident. I had a blowout in a car that was going way too fast because I was driving way too fast, and the car flipped. And to this day, even though I wouldn't say I had trauma from the experience necessarily, on occasion when I'm driving, there's a little twinge. There's a little twinge in my heart that's like being in a car driving fast is dangerous. <laughs> is dangerous, And I never forget that sensation. It's not traumatizing or anything, but I can feel it like on occasion when I'm in the car. That's one response to the experience. So we all have these different experiences. So part of the reason dukkha tends to be general and a little vague because it's acknowledging the fact that all of us here have universal experiences that tend to be hurtful, right? Tend to stress us out, tend to make us sad, tend to cause grief. And yet, depending on who we are and where we are in our life and in our world, we may or may not experience dukkha in that circumstance. It really just depends on our reaction to the experience, what our heart-mind does in the moment. Now, another example of this is stress. You know, as adults, <laughs> I know everyone in this room knows what stress is, right? Everyone knows what stress is. So the interesting thing about stress is we can say, oh man, I had a stressful day. But we have to remember that when we say the day was stressful, the day was just the day, right? Stress is the emotional consequence of how we dealt with the day, how we went through our day. You know, there's some days where you get up and you're tired and you're cranky and you're grouchy and you feel uncentered and off base. And that heart-mind quality makes what we call stress. And then there's other days where you might have that exact same day, but you just take that day on and it's fine. Like it's not stressful at all. You manage it, you're feeling great, and everything works out. So when we think of dukkha, we're thinking of types of experiences that all humans have, but more importantly, the inner experience, our personal experience of suffering that's unique to us as individuals, that we get to experience based on the heart-mind qualities of who we are in the present moment.
because dukkha is caused by a reaction of how we are in the moment, because it's not necessarily caused by the outside circumstance. One might say it's triggered by the outside circumstance, but it's caused by our heart-mind reaction. Because of that, we can be free from it. This is the heart of the Buddha's teachings. We can be free from dukkha because what Buddha means by dukkha is that heart-mind kinetic reaction to the present moment experience. If it was actually caused literally by the outside circumstance, that would mean two people get in a car accident and their experience is identical always because the car accident causes something literal to happen to everybody who has that experience. But that's not how human experience works, thankfully, because dukkha is part of a reactive process, we can change our reaction. We can control how we react and therefore be free from the suffering. So that is really important to when we talk about suffering and we talk about dukkha, the Buddha really meant your inner personal experience of what's going on in the present moment. And his claim to fame was the insight that we can control that. We can master the heart and mind. We can cultivate ways of being that allow us autonomy over how we react to present moment phenomenon to such a deep and, uh, well, let's say ultimate, in such a deep way that we could actually say we are free from dukkha ultimately. And that's the enlightenment, the freedom from the dukkha. The other thing I wanted to remind us about dukkha is that when the Buddha lays out his teachings, he always says, he says over and over again in the teachings, the only thing I teach is suffering and the end of suffering. Dukkha and dukkha's end. It is really the only thing the Buddha was concerned with ultimately in his teachings was can we get out of this thing called dukkha? There's this famous quote, again, many of you have probably heard it, but the Buddha says this at least two or three times in the Pali Suttas. Both formally and now, it's only suffering that I describe and the cessation of suffering. Both formally and now, it's only suffering that I describe and the cessation of suffering. The entire Eightfold Path is designed as a map out of Dukkha. It is a blueprint, if you will, of human consciousness and how human consciousness reacts to phenomenon in the present moment in order to create our experiences. That is the basis of all of Buddhist teachings. I want to read you one of my favorite quotes by Tanisro Bhikkhu about Dukkha and the Eightfold Path, and I'm going to make some comments on it. But I want to read this to you. This comes from this book called On the Path, which is a book on the Eightfold Path. It's one of my favorite Eightfold Path books, along with Joseph Goldstein's uh, Mindfulness, A Practical Guide to Awakening. If you don't have that one, that's another good one. This is a, I love this quote. It's a little long, so you can uh, be with body and sensations as I read it. This is called The Fire Escape. The Buddha's teachings are like the instructions posted on a hotel room door 
telling you what to do when the hotel's on fire. Step 1. Heed the fire alarm. This corresponds to the Buddha's teachings on Samvega, the sense that humans get when they're enmeshed in a dangerous situation and want to find a way out. Step 2. Realize that your conduct in this situation will mean the difference between life and death. This corresponds to heedfulness, the attitude underlying all skillful meditative behavior. Read the map posted on the door. Find the closest fire escape. This corresponds to right view. Next step. Make up your mind to follow the map. This corresponds to right intention. Step 5. Don't abuse any of the other people in the hotel as you try to make your escape. Don't lie to them about the escape route, don't claw your way over them, and don't cheat them out of their belongings. This corresponds to right speech, right action, and right livelihood. Step 6. Do your best to follow the instructions on the map, and resist the temptation to stay in the comfort of your room, or to wander down the wrong corridors. This corresponds to right effort. Step 7. Keep the map in mind at all times, and check your efforts to make sure they're in line with it. This corresponds to right mindfulness. And the last step. Keep calm and focused, so that your emotions don't prevent you from being clearly aware of what you're doing and what needs to be done. This corresponds to right concentration. The fire escape. One of the reasons I like that, obviously the real reason I like is when he talks about right speech and right action. Don't abuse any of the other people in the hotel as you try to make your escape. Don't lie to them about the escape route. Don't claw your way over them and don't cheat them out of their belongings. I feel like that's truth to live by. I love that. <laughs> um, the reason I really like this, this passage is based on what I said earlier about dukkha, that the Buddhist teachings are quite simple and quite straightforward. They're designed to get you out of the building, right? The building of suffering. It's designed to get you away from dukkha. And what's interesting about this concept of an escape plan, if, like, if you remember how little fire escape plans work, they're very bare bones. They're very simple. The description of the building is just an infographic. And then there's the red arrow usually that just tells you where you are and how to get out. What's interesting about that is the Dharma is also written that way, meaning the Buddha described his teachings as a direct path out of Dukkha, meaning it's just a line of here's the eightfolds of the path and this is how the meditation works. Now, the challenge with this map, right, is that if we're to take a fire escape plan and start adding back in other details, like we start drawing like, where the soda machine is and where you can find the pool and where the restaurant is in the hotel. You start adding different things into this diagram. Before you know it, you can't see the way out because now the teaching has become something different. And so this escape plan that the Buddha has, this eightfold path out of suffering, becomes something very challenging to understand if we make it too complicated, if we lay too many things over the top of it, if we ask it to do something other than getting us out of the hotel, it can become very confusing. And at a certain point, 
it actually becomes so confusing that we don't know how to follow the red arrow anymore out of dukkha. So we have to be careful of looking at the Dharma outside of this main goal, which is to be free from suffering. As long as we keep our orientation to dukkha and the end of dukkha, all of the practices that we learn will make a lot more sense. And I'm going to clarify this in a minute about what happens when we add things to this fire escape plan. But just for clarification, again, the Buddha's idea was that the main focus of our practice should be to get out of suffering, to get out of the sense of discontent. I wanted to list four different things here that I've experienced in my own, in my own practice. And I know students experience it quite frequently. And these are just some ways that we end up adding things to this fire escape or trying to use this fire escape map for something other than getting out of the dukkha that's described. And this will make sense when I, when I go through it. One of the things as students that we often want from the Dharma or out of the Dharma is quicker results. <laughs> Am I, am I the only one <laughs> that wants this to go faster? <laughs> so just thinking we're all human, I might not be the only one, but human beings, and you know, I'm in a privileged position to talk with lots of students, but I know myself, oftentimes when we approach the Dharma, we want the Dharma to end our suffering much quicker than it actually does. We want quicker results. That is very important to keep an eye on that because the Dharma is a long-term investment in your health and well-being. The Dharma is a path, it's a journey, and takes time, effort, and energy. And it's not until you really have the basics down that it will provide, on occasion, the quickness you desire. <laughs> the quickness you desire. Another thing we ask of the Dharma oftentimes is that we come to the Dharma and we want the Dharma to heal a very specific wound. We approach the Dharma and we say, I have insomnia or I have anxiety or I have depression or I'm grieving because of A or B. And we come to the Dharma oftentimes, and this is normative for all of us, but we come to the Dharma with a very particular request that the Dharma take away a particular suffering. And I'm like this as well. I came to the Dharma for anxiety and insomnia and migraines way back in the day. And I was, I wanted it to take away that. That's why I, I was learning to meditate. And oftentimes what we find though with the Dharma is that the Dharma does not have specific tools for any of these things in and of themselves. What happens is as we learn and get deeper and more mature in practice, we learn along the way how to apply the Dharma to different things in our life. But the Dharma itself, the instructions itself, doesn't have a section called mindfulness, how to get out of depression, or mindfulness, how to sleep better, or mindfulness about migraines. It's not a medical manual that way. And I know a lot of us get really frustrated because we really come to the Dharma and we say, you know, I've been practicing for this amount of time. Why am I still having A, B, and C? And I'll, I'll clarify how I came to experience this in my own practice. 
there was a time in my practice where my practice was really stagnating and I was really frustrated because I wasn't finding that my Dharma practice was really decreasing my anxiety the way I wanted it to. I felt like the Dharma had promised me something and was failing miserably at it at the time. And I, I went back to therapy to get some help with my anxiety with therapy and I immediately got some new relief that I hadn't had before. And I had to ask myself, it's like, well, if I had to go to therapy to help with the anxiety, why am I spending hours and hours a day on a meditation cushion? Like, what is going on here? And this is how I, I've come to understand how the Dharma works. If you imagine suffering like a tree, right? The root of the tree, the trunk of the tree, is the ultimate cause of all of our suffering right? It's the underlying structural causes of everything that, that brings discontent into our life at the base of the tree. If you go up the tree, you have all the specific instances and types of suffering we experience day to day. Like I'm having trouble with my kiddos. I'm struggling with my parents or my in-laws. One branch of the tree is depression. Another one is anxiety. And we have all these different branches that we would really like to get trimmed back. Therapy is really good at trimming the branches, but therapy doesn't really ever chop down the tree. It never gets down to the root cause of dukkha. The Dharma is really good at taking big wax at the bottom of the tree, but isn't so good, especially in the beginning, at trimming away the branches. So oftentimes when we come to Dharma, we want quicker results, we want very specific suffering to be relieved, and we find that we're wanting. We find that there's this sense of like, well, it's not really working. Like, why isn't it working quicker? Why isn't it healing these different things for me? The longer you practice and the more mature you get in practice, the more the Dharma is able to, or I should say we are able to, direct the Dharma towards specific ends. But in the beginning of practice, and especially the first few years of practice, we're just mastering the tools. We're just understanding the nature of the practice and the nature of suffering. The Dharma is promising that eventually the whole root system of suffering is going to be removed. So again, it's a long-term investment. It really pays off month after month, year after year of practice until it's really bearing fruits. And oftentimes we can get very discouraged with this fact and we might look at the dharma as having failed us which i know i have numerous times in my experience we look at the dharma as saying this is <laughs> this is crap it's not working <laughs> this promise isn't working but it is working it just takes time it's just simply not designed for emergency mental health care right the dharma isn't designed for crisis moments until you really have mastered some of the techniques. Then when you're in crisis, you can bring mindfulness to the experience and really feel relief. But in the beginning stages of practice, meditation is not designed as acute mental health care, so to speak. And when I went to meditation in the beginning, that's what I was looking for. I was like, I need something quick. I would like this to work pronto. I was looking at my watch, like when is enlightenment coming? And one of the best things that ever happened to me is when I realized, oh, this takes time. I need to learn how to do this technique. It is not a quick, easy fix for suffering. It is a commitment to a life in which we aspire to practice committedly to such a degree that we're aspiring for 
an insight into the deepest causality of suffering, and that's where we're headed. Another aspect of this, and I will talk about this more in the coming weeks, but I wanted to mention it today. The Dharma is not designed... I'm going to say this in a general sense, then I'll clarify. The Dharma is not designed to heal trauma. The Dharma is not designed to heal trauma the way that therapy is designed to work with trauma. And the reason being, here's the reason, and coming from someone who's experienced that, um, the reason is, is that the basic tools of meditation practice are about letting go, as we know, disidentifying with things, watching emotions arise and passing away, not being attached to experience. If you've experienced trauma, the first step in getting over trauma is to, to honor the emotions, to get back into your body, to identify with the experience. So a lot of people, when they come to the Dharma, are like, I've got trauma, I'm going to go practice Buddhism. That is not necessarily the best medicine. It can make trauma worse, in fact, because the Dharma's teachings presume that some of that trauma work has already been done, that you're ready to actually do the depersonalization work. And one of the symptoms of trauma is depersonalization. <laughs> so if you're already experiencing depersonalization from a trauma, what you first need to do is get healthy personalization. You have to have a healthy ego. You must integrate some of that pain and suffering that's happened, and then you let go. Then you let go of self. Then you work on not self-teachings and so on. So I'm saying this because many people come to the Dharma, and we don't often say, and again, this is uh, oversight on my part as a teacher, where I don't often say enough that, look, the Dharma is designed for this long-term happiness and well-being. It is not so good at immediate relief for most people, especially if they're in crisis or they have flooding from trauma or you have significant or severe depression or you have panic attacks. It might help. Mostly it helps if you combine it with therapy so you have the other part of the healing taking place at the same time. In my life, I say that Dharma and therapy combined, if you have stuff like that in your path, is the best bet. I know that's what it's what it's done for me, that combining therapy with the Dharma makes the Dharma work better, right? Because you get both. You get the healthy ego, which is from therapy, and you let go of the egoic energies as the Dharma. And you can do them at the same time. But if you already are experiencing some intense stuff like that, and you go into deep meditation, that can cause significant problems. It can be significant for you. So that's something we don't talk about. And it just really struck me recently that that needs to be sort of a disclaimer more often in our communities about the Dharma. One last thing I wanted to say for this kind of overview. The Dharma is designed to heal that personalized experience of discontent, right? Because if you think about what the Dharma does, we sit in meditation, we bring mindfulness into the world. So it's all happening in our consciousness, right? It's all happening in our individual heart-mind experience. Oftentimes when we come to the Dharma, we look at the Dharma and we ask, 
or require the Dharma in a matter of speaking to heal social interpersonal interactions, meaning systemic interactions. And the tool of Vipassana in and of itself is not designed to do that. It's designed for an interpersonal, in, sorry, not interpersonal, intrapersonal journey. So the meditation itself is designed for you to go in to deal with your own subjective suffering. Then as you heal, right, empathy and compassion arises. And that empathy and compassion that arises then inspires us to serve and to take kindness out of the meditation cushion and into the world to serve others. So the path has this expectation that the first step to serve others and to change broad systemic suffering in communities is to first go into ourself and do the inner work. And then that compassion and empathy and understanding of the nature of suffering then can be brought into the world and we can use it to serve all around us. The challenge becomes where we don't do enough of the inner work. If we don't do enough of the inner work, serving others and showing up in the world as a kind, loving, compassionate being in an extroverted way, like really being out and serving others, leads to chronic compassion fatigue. It leads to exhaustion and guilt and shame and tiredness. And so one of the things to really know about the Dharma is that the Dharma itself does not give a prescription for solving larger systemic issues, meaning you're not going to find anything in the Pali Suttas about, say, climate change. But as meditators, we know that as we meditate, the desire to be in touch with the planet to save the planet, so to speak, to take part in that call to social change around environmental justice starts to spark inside of us, <clears throat> excuse me, from the practice itself. So it's really important that when we approach the Dharma, we realize how the interpersonal work then translates for us to then leave the cushion and into our communities to then to do work with others, to take our open hearts and our open minds and live up to that highest aspiration of freedom for all beings. The challenge becomes when we look to the Dharma and we want it to be prescriptive, how do I solve this societal ill or that societal ill? And it's nowhere to be found in the Dharma. Because where it's found is in the transformation of your own heart. It's found in the generation of compassion. And it's found in that internal process that we go through to transcend suffering. We become so in tune to other people's suffering. And we want other people to be well as, as well. <laughs> and so it's really important that when we approach the Dharma, we know where in the Dharma that instruction is to serve and to help others. Oftentimes we get really disappointed when we look into the Dharma and we're not finding some kind of teaching on how to deal with larger systemic ills because it's such an overwhelming problem. And we ask ourselves, well, how does the Dharma address this large global circumstance? It addresses it from the inside out. The way the Dharma looks at systems is the Dharma sees that systems are made of people and people have hearts and minds that are filled with discontent and suffering. And the more people that can awaken to their own nature 
and understand the nature of suffering, the more compassionate they'll be. And the more compassionate and awakened individuals become, the more you have people in those systems that are then taking a stand for the social change. I hope that makes sense. It's, it's an internal to external process. But sometimes people get really confused or they feel like the Dharma has let them down because we just don't, in 10,000 pages of Pali Suttas, you're not going to see a game plan for that kind of stuff. We have to create that plan with our open heart. We need to go out and do it. We need to create it. It's something, and it doesn't mean that the Dharma is lacking in something. I'd like to emphasize this. It's just that it's not designed to do that. We have to, as human beings, take our open hearts and then go do good deeds with it. So that's another thing that we can get hung up on. I became a social worker because I really wanted to have a job that was in alignment with my dharma practice. I wanted to sort of meditate at night and go serve by day, so to speak, right? Put on my superhero cape and go do social worker stuff during the day. Uh, but in my own personal life, there's been a real sense of confusion on how do I best serve? How do I best take my dharma off the cushion and into the world? How do I do that? And we'll be talking about this as we move forward in the next few weeks. But I just wanted to list those off. So I'm going to just give a little summary here. When we approach the Dharma, the escape plan that it offers is an internal freedom from how we experience discontent as it's caused by our own hearts and minds. The process takes time. It's not a quick fix. It is designed for a long-term commitment. It's designed for ongoing, continuous practice. The more you practice the more it's effective when you're in crisis. But if you come to the Dharma in crisis, there's usually some other therapeutic work that really needs to be done before the Dharma will really speak to your heart. And in some cases, it can make your mental health or your well-being worse if you really aren't in a place in your heart and mind where depersonalizing reality in the way that meditation does is the right medicine for you. Important to know. Lastly, again, the Dharma is highly focused on that internal experience. There isn't a lot of description in the Dharma on how to serve others. And part of that reason is, for each of us, it's going to be different. Compassion arises, and one of us might direct that compassion to an ailing parent or to our children. Another person will take their open heart and dedicate their time to climate change or Black Lives Matter or a zillion other thing. I Lately, I've been working with home, the homeless population. So anything that we do with our open heart is a part of the practice. We just have to be careful of trying to look into the teachings themselves and find some kind of game plan because we're not going to find it. And we could be really disappointed when we don't see it there explicit in the teachings. I think that's what I wanted to say today. I wanted to give this as a, as a framework. Yeah, I think that's let's let's stop there. A couple things that are that I'm not going to talk about tonight, obviously, because of time, but I'm going to be talking about next that is really struggling for myself and others. We're really going to be talking about well, what I just said, but in a very specific way. How do we know how much self-liberation to focus on and how much do we focus on the liberation of others? How do we know how to balance that? 
And I'm not, the, raise your hand if that's a struggle for you. Oh my God, it's totally a struggle for me. Okay, I'm not. The, <laughs> look at this, human beings having a common human experience. Common human, imagine that. Um, and so I've, I've already created part of the talk for next week. It's going to be about this. It's going to be about really looking into, okay, we've got this idea of dukkha. We acknowledge that this technique and tool is pretty hyper-specific about what it's doing. How do we bring decision-making, skillful effort and skillful means to take the insights of the practice and move it into the world? Like, what do we do? Since the teachings aren't very clear on that, what do we do? What can we do? And most importantly, what are the common struggles that all of us seem to be experiencing around this? And a couple things that I'm going to be talking about is that inner voice that you have that often says, is meditation selfish? Is working on myself a selfish act? That's a huge question for meditators and has been, as far as I'm concerned, from the beginning of meditation. So that's something we'll be talking about. Is this selfish? If not, why? And how do I know if I'm being too selfish? <laughs> how do I know? Like, how do I know if I'm being selfish with my practice? Am I being open-hearted as much as I can be? Am I making excuses? Am I, you know, how do we know? So we've got this little voice in our head that's constantly asking, like, am I doing this right in the compassion part? So we're going to be talking about that. And another thing we're going to be talking about, I had it written down. Give me a second. Where is it? Oh, that's all I had written down right there. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for listening, my friends. I think this is really important stuff. If you have not, if you didn't catch the Dharma talk last week, please listen to it. I think it, I think it is very important. For those of you who can stay for another couple minutes, let's fall back into meta so we leave on a grounded, compassionate note. Take a long, slow, deep breath in, returning to body breathing, noticing the sensations in the body. It's been 40 minutes or so. There's going to be some physical sensations there. Just notice the sensation of sitting now. another long slow deep breath in and on the exhale really relax the tension in the body and to the degree it's comfortable let's bring our awareness to the area we call the heart notice any sensations there And attune to heart energy, this part of our body, with an attitude of wakefulness, with an aspiration for goodwill for all beings. Let us wish all beings to be free from suffering. Let us wish all beings to be free from danger, worry, and concern. May all beings know true love, true joy, and true compassion in this lifetime.
Let us remind ourselves that we never practice just for ourselves. We always practice with our highest aspiration to be able to show up in the world with kindness, generosity, and the spirit of service. May all beings know true joy, true love, and true kindness in this lifetime. May all beings be free from discontent. May all beings be free from discontent. With awareness in the heart area, attuned to sensations in the heart-mind. We might ask ourselves this. In this moment, if you could wish anything for all beings and know it would come to pass, what would that wish be? In this moment, what would be your highest aspiration for all living beings? Thank you, my friends, for sharing your time with me. Thanks for being in community. Thanks for joining us here at Wednesday Wake Up. We honor the traditional Buddhist practice of offering the teachings without charge. So this podcast will always be ad-free and will never be behind a paywall. This podcast is sustained exclusively by the generosity of listeners. If you've received value from this podcast and have found your life or practice enriched by listening to it, you can support Gregory as a teacher by going to our website, www.wednesdaywakeup.com, and click on Donate at the menu on the top. While you're here at the website, join our mailing list and follow Gregory on Instagram at Gregory Maloof Dharma. Thank you again for listening. May all beings be happy.